0: Think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. You just said something. Think, 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 think. It's time. Get your brains working. Get everything up and moving. Shake it out. Hopefully everything works like it's supposed to because the computer literally just tried to crash on me. So who mm. knows what's going to happen next. But hi, I'm Michael. And I've come to you today to tell you that even the details matter to God. Yes, even the little minuscule ones that we skip the stuff you don't read when you read your Bible. And yes, I'm talking to you because we know you didn't do it. So where are we today? We are in the middle of our worldview foundations, walking through scripture, applying what it means to think about the text of scripture biblically, and then seeing if we can take that knowledge and apply it to how we live in our world so that we again think biblically. Something that Past generations didn't have to work so stinking hard to do. Why not? Well, because past generations up until about, near between 150 and 200 years ago, they had en masse a theistic worldview, an understanding that God exists or that a God exists and that they are responsible to him. With the removal of that, We have the increased secularization of our world, which means the Christian has to think through and attack the things they encounter on a day-by-day basis a little differently. You cannot do what we do so often, which is assume everybody else is thinking and interacting the same way we are. Hopefully, this little series is a bit of a help. That as we walk through scripture, and as we think through these things, we can set up a... uh, Well, a scenario? No. We can set up a structure and a grid by which we can actually understand this world from a biblical perspective. So, we are in Numbers, which if there is ever a part of your Bible you're going to skip, that's not Leviticus. It's Numbers. We shouldn't. Now, I didn't say you should commit the entirety of the book to memory but there is a middle way here we should be able to read it and appreciate it and understand it now i will not torture you by making you read it so chapter 1 the lord spoke to moses in the wilderness of sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the on the first of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of egypt so it's been about a year since we've left egypt now saying what? Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their father's household, according to the number of names, every male head by head from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of his father's household. These then are the names of the men who shall stand with you. And then there you go. And now they are named off the heads of the households, the counting out. The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribe, for the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi shall you not number, nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all the furnishings and over all of the belongings of it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it. They shall also camp around the tabernacle. Notice the reasoning. This is supposed to be a comfort to Israel. An understanding of who God has redeemed and for what purpose he has redeemed them. This is why the Levites aren't counted. The Levites aren't really that category of people in Israel. They are not really of Israel. They don't belong to the nation. They are supposed to be set aside and belong to God. Therefore, you don't need to count them. God has enough. Well, how many does he need? However many he needs. Does he have enough? The answer is yes. God has has enough. He doesn't need you to count them. You don't need to know. It doesn't matter. God knows. So, you get the arrangement of the camps in chapter 2. I'll let you read that. Yes, it is very cross-like, and I'll let you deal with that. You get chapter 3, where the Levites are apportioned and uh, appointed to the priesthood. Then you get their duties retaken. You get the redemption of the firstborn. Number every firstborn male of the sons of Israel from a month old upward and make a list of their names. Why, I wonder. You shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord instead of all the firstborn among the sons of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the sons of Israel. Notice what's going on here. The firstborn belong to God. Why? Why? Because he has already paid for them with the exodus. He has already paid for them with redemption in Egypt. They were due to die. The firstborn of the land will be dead unless you are exercising faith in Yahweh. Notice it is saving faith Not saving work. The sacrifice of the lamb in the blood on the doorpost is pointing to the sacrifice of the lamb who is Christ and the blood that he sheds at Calvary, not the lamb itself. (coughs) Excuse me. The thing that saves the Israelites is their faith. Their faith in the fact that I have killed this lamb so God will spare my son. As a reminder of that, the firstborn of everything is set aside for God. He owns them. They belong to him. So what God is basically saying now is the Levites will be his firstborn. That they are his. Now within the Levites, there are a division. You get that in chapter four. You get the duties of all the priests and what they're going to do. And then you get some provision for the people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. Why? What is Israel supposed to be? Two reasons here. One practical, one uh, ceremonial, real ceremonial, really. Practically, if there's disease like this, you need to get it out of the camp. I mean, the world has been shut down because we've acted like COVID was, you know, Captain Trips from... Um, from the stand or something, it wasn't, but that's neither here nor there. You want to actually quarantine sick people away from healthy people, especially in this world where something like uh, well, something like a skin infection or leprosy could spread and you know devastate a population. But the better and more important reason is the holiness of Israel. They are to be a pure and undefiled people, illness. Judgment from God, symbols of sin, symbols of brokenness. Therefore, they are to be set aside. And when they are healed and restored by God, they are restored to the people. Israel is supposed to be pure, holy, and undefiled, a people for God's own possession, as Peter would also describe the church. Therefore, anything that is a symbol of that impurity to the nations around them is to be removed. You're going, well, why as Christians do we not do that with sick people today? And the answer is because we're not testifying as a nation. We are testifying as a holy people, pure in Christ, recognizing that we ourselves are not pure, but we can live in purity as we live in Christ. That's why Peter can apportion the language of holiness and righteousness and why Christians can be involved in the muck and the mire of the world and can serve humanity and the kingdom in the midst of the muck and the mire of the world. Because our holiness and our righteousness is alien to us, it is provided by Christ. Therefore, we do not have to worry about anything in this world staining us and removing that righteousness. We can rest on God. You also get the uh, test for adultery here, <coughs> excuse me, which would be important for the Israelites because, again, it puts the judgment where? You may think the test is bizarre. For the Israelite, it puts the test solely in the hands of God. He is the one who enacts it. He is the one who judges. You also have the law of the Nazarites for the people that are being set aside for God. How are they to live? How are they to understand? This will become important if you want to understand what's going on with Samson and that his power comes from God and not from his hair, the law of the Nazarite in number 6. You then get the offerings being given. Why? Because the people are commanded to worship. They are, again, a holy people for God's own possession they worship and serve Yahweh alone so as he has prescribed and has as he has commanded they are to live and to offer so you have the cleansings you have how are the priests going to retire what are they going to do when they can't do this anymore how are all of these practical applications of living out a worshipful existence how do they work how do they function See, I mean, this is important. The Lord spoke to Moses. This is the end of chapter 8. This is what applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall perform—I'm sorry. They shall enter to perform service in the work of the tent of meeting. But at the age of 50 years, they shall retire from service in the work and not work any more. They may, however, assist their brothers in the tent of meeting to keep an obligation, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall deal with the Levites concerning their obligations." In other words, you should – Why? this is important. 50 is not old. Even in this world, yes, the average life expectancy would be short, but that's not because people just dropped dead in their 40s and 30s. But that's because a lot of infants died, which skewed the numbers. 50 is not, you know, ancient, one foot in the ground. You can't work. There's priests that probably live for 20 to 30 years after their retirement. Easily could be working and consider continuing to minister. Why not? Puts a time limit on it, doesn't it? Temptation when you don't know the day or the hour. You don't know when it's coming to just act like it's coming way out in the future, way down in the distant land. That's one of the reasons why we're told what in the New Testament? To live each day as if it's what? Our last. Here the Levites are being told, you have a limited time. So that kid over there that you don't feel like discipling, he's going to take over and do this work get to work. You're going to walk away. You're going to sit down and entrust this to the next generation. Therefore, do the work that God has commanded. It's important and it matters. So thus the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. It's important. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall observe it at the appointed time. You shall observe it according to all its statutes and according to all its ordinances. Because it's a reminder of what? Same reason, Christian, we celebrate the supper. We partake of the bread and the wine. Israel is supposed to be reminded that they... Have been redeemed by God, that He is Savior, that He is the Judge, and He is the Creator upon whom they are dependent. Notice again, understanding the reality of who God is and how we relate to Him explains the commands that He's giving to His people and explains how we're supposed to respond to these commands. We celebrate the Supper for the same reason they celebrate the Passover. We're reminded of the great, glorious, gracious works of God. I ran out of G's there, sorry. And we are reminded also of the promises that are yet to come. If your supper, if your communion is only backward looking, you are missing the blessings of communion. If it is only a reminder of the work that Christ has done upon the cross, then you have missed gospel freedom and gospel living in the here and now. We are free in Christ because of his work, yes, but we are free to walk and live in Christ's likeness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, endeavoring to serve in the kingdom that God is building. We remember the work so that it will spur us forward in faithfulness because that is now a new declaration of who we are and how we are to live. So, On the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. This is important. What you have is the Lord, Yahweh, in the midst of the camp, dwelling with his people. What was lost in the garden has been partially restored. And the reason I say partially is, can any Israelite go into the tabernacle? No. Can any priest even just go into the tabernacle and peek behind the curtain? No. Can they go stand before the ark and proclaim that they are the belongings of God? The answer is no. They are still separated. They are still veiled because sin still abides upon them while they are cleansing they are pointing towards the cleansing. While they are being forgiven, they are pointing towards the forgiveness. While they're offering sacrifices, they are pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice. This is about the work of Christ that is to come. This is about the finality of our standing before God in Christ and Christ alone. Excuse me. The Israelites are giving us a picture of a halfway. So God was in the garden with a perfect Adam and Eve, with a flawless Adam and Eve. As sin has entered, that, that communion is broken. Here with Israel, it is partially, distra- uh, partially restored as God is now in the midst of the camp. He is in the tabernacle. The Israelites, though, are still at arm's length, which is a reminder that they are not pure. They have been redeemed and they are being redeemed and they are longing for what? This is what the Passover should point them to. They are longing to the final redemption when that separation is no more and they fully stand in the presence of god likewise christian what did i say earlier about the supper same reminders we have been redeemed by the work of christ and we are walking in faithfulness being redeemed and perfected by the work of the holy spirit and we will finally be redeemed as we stand before god in his eternal kingdom clothed in the glory that he has provided washed by the sacrifice that he has made granted the righteousness that he has accomplished We will then have that faithful communion restored because we are his children, dwelling in his presence. Again, Israel's giving you a partial picture of that because they can't stand before God in their sin. They need a mediator who is better than Moses. They need a sacrifice that is better than a lamb. They need a covenant that is better than this nation. They need Christ. They need God on high to do his work. So, the trumpets are set up. The tribes in the second year set out from Sinai. They are moving along. And the people start to do what? Come on. You've been paying attention to your Old Testament. Now the people, verse, uh, chapter 11, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Yeah. In the midst of everything I've just described, that they are living out day by day, they sin. And God reminds them of who they are, that they are the dependent ones, that he is savior, but he is also judge. Christian, this should actually be a comfort to you. Because in Christ you are saved. Your sin placed upon him upon the cross. In him you are cleansed. But you are still not fully washed. I guess would be the right word. Excuse me. Smack the microphone a little bit. It's good for us. You are not fully complete. And yes, I know that's a redundancy from the Department of Redundancy Department. But you are not finished yet. The work is finished, but you are not finished. What that should tell you is that it will be finished. It will be completed. This is one of the promises. (coughs) Excuse me again. This is one of the promises that God allows. This is one of the promises that he is going to fulfill. Just as the Israelites complain, we get caught in our sin. And just as the Israelites are not completely destroyed, Christian, you are not destroyed. Excuse me, one second again. Mm, I got a frog in my throat, apparently. As long as I don't get darkness and flies and gnats and hail, we're going to be all right. That was a plague's joke, for those of you not paying attention. But this is what goes on. Humanity sins. We walk away. We deal with consequences. We deal with problems. And God graciously, long-sufferingly Perseveres with us. He sustains us in the midst of our sin. He suffers our iniquity as we are being cleansed, as we are being sanctified. This is one of those hard things that we get at because we want to be better and we think that other Christians should be better. And we have to realize that we're we're just not. We're just not. We're endeavoring, we're working, and by the power of the Holy Spirit we're going to get there, but we're just not there now. But God hasn't forgotten. He hasn't reneged on His promises. He has not removed His grace and His mercy. He has not left us as orphans. Therefore, we can persevere in the midst of our sin because He is persevering in the midst of our sin. So, there... Complaining, they're greedy. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased, as he should be. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people upon me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, Carry them in, the, in your bosom as a nurse? Carries a nursing infant to the land to which you swore to their fathers? Where am i to get meat to give to all this people the answer is he's not god will give and god hears the complaint and recognizes just as jethro said that you can't do this work so the 70 elders are appointed the work is divided moses is strengthened and again i want to give moses a hard time and i want to give moses some credit here so moses is complaining and grumbling a little bit that's not good And it won't be good for Moses as he continues to to dishonor God, and he gets to the place where he finally basically curses God in his actions. And that's why Moses doesn't enter the land. But Moses also rightly honors God because Moses can't do anything about this complaint, but who can? Who's their preserver? Who is the faithful one? Who is the one who will deliver this people? So there was, went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp and about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground, three feet deep of birds. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibrath Ava, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. Don't you love it? God will not leave the guilty unpunished. Were there people who were hungry who didn't die? Yeah. Because they were trusting in God and they weren't complaining. There you go. The heart of the matter before God. The heart of the person before God. Again, Christian, this is what separates the us from the pagans around us. They sin and we sin. Why are we better? Well, the short answer is we're not. We, however, recognize that there is a Savior and that his work abides for us. So, when we forget that, we are walking as the Israelite. When we remember that, we are rightly proclaiming gospel truth to the nations. We are rightly pointing out ourselves as not the good ones and ourselves as not the saviors, and we are rightly pointing out that it is God who saves, redeems, and justifies. So you get Miriam and Aaron continuing to complain, you get them getting judgment, and then you get the all time best. Excuse me. You get the spies sent in. And they come back. And remember, there are two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb. But unfortunately, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless... The people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea, uh, by the side of the Jordan. (sighs) So the people won't go. We are like grasshoppers in their sight, is what the chapter will say. Think about the lack of knowledge. This is again Christian. We're gonna we're gonna make this connection here. This is why understanding and thinking rightly is so important. Because if you don't do it, you will fall into this trap. What this people is saying is the God who created the universe. The God who upholds it by the power of his hand, the God who has demonstrated his authority and power over Egypt, who has demonstrated his power and authority over all things through his plagues and his redemption, the parting of the sea, his preserving of the people, his preservations, his provision is the word I'm trying to find, the giving of food, the giving of of manna, the giving of water, all of these powers, tall people are his weakness. He can't kill them. They're giants the man who gave us victory over was the amalekites back in um back in exodus the man who gave us that victory the god who gave us that victory he can't defeat all these peoples the god who wiped out egypt the greatest power in the world He can't give us this tiny bit of land. The God who conquered the sky and rules over the seas and the waters and everything around us. He can't defeat this people. Oh my goodness. See, when you say it like that, it sounds really dumb. And what's the rule? Exactly. Don't do dumb things. They have forgotten who God is how he's operated, who they are, and how those things work together. Christian, think through your standing before God and evaluate. Yes, we rightly know because we can coffee cup it and say, well, there is no problem too big for God. Agreed. So why don't we pray? Why don't we trust? Why do we always think that the next election is so important? Why do we always think that this scandal and the loss of this Christian leader or whatever is so devastating? Why do we assume that all of these things destroy and make our work impossible? The answer is because we have forgotten in this world how big and powerful God actually is. So the people rebel. All the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And they complained, and they grumbled, and they whined. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? See, that's the question right there. I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. Now, we know this isn't going to happen, but this is a test. A test for who? Moses, the prophet and leader of the people. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. You, you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye, while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar above cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, "It is because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving in iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Moses is quoting what was proclaimed as God passed by him in Exodus. Pardon, I pray, this iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have also forgiven the people from Egypt, even until now. So there you go. He appeals to God as what? Gracious and loving Savior. And when Israel sins against God by now saying, fine, we'll take the land in spite of the fact that you're going to judge us for 40 years. They have lost and they are wiped out. So thus begins the part you skip. Laws. Laws for Canaan. Laws for the Sabbath. You get the rebellion of Korah or once again, well, we're holy just like everybody else. We're holy like Moses. Why are you the one who gets to do all these things? And the answer is the earth will swallow you. <clears throat> Why? Because you're not set aside like Moses. You're walking in pride. And again, how bad is the sin of of Israel? They complain that it's Moses' fault that God has done this. Don't you love it? I mean, think about this. The next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. No, God is the one who has caused the death of God's people, not Moses. But again, are you not seeing the temptations here? This is the problem when we get too invested In the world. This is why when we look at stories, when Lou and I sit down or Cameron and I sit down we look at stories, we want to look at them how? Appreciate them for what they are and then understand them and evaluate them as Christians. We don't want to see these things as the world sees them. We want to see them as God's people, who we are and how we are in him. So the people are rebuked. Aaron's staff is the one that buds. He is the chosen. He is the mouthpiece and messenger from God. So we get back to understanding worship. You get the Levites and how they are to live and how they are to be given. You get ordinances for how the offerings are supposed to be given. You get death from Miriam and then you get water. Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes. You know how this ends. This is Numbers 20. Moses doesn't speak to it because the people grumble and complain, and Moses gets aggravated and he strikes the rock. That's treating God as unholy. That is blaspheming in his presence, and that is why Moses doesn't enter the land. And Moses will be bitter about it. He's going to blame the Israelites when he gets to Deuteronomy. It's because of you that I sinned against the Lord. I I mean, I, I, I love that, actually. But at the same token... This is the problem for Moses. Sin is in everyone. So Miriam, who had the great praise song when they crossed the Red Sea, she doesn't make it. End of the chapter, Aaron's going to die as the high priest. He doesn't make it. Moses, as the prophet and the mouthpiece of God and the deliverer of the people on behalf of God, he's not going to make it. We need a better praise. We need a better priest. We need a better deliverer. These things are pointing us to Christ. Away from Moses, who will die and be gone. Away from Aaron, who will die and be gone. Away from all of these priests who are going to die and be gone. (coughs) and towards God who is in heaven. <sighs> and once again, the Israelites sin. God grants them victory, and they sin. You get the, the uh, issue with the, with the serpents. Once again, Jesus will use this in John 3, as a serpent was lifted up, whoever looks upon it is healed. Those who behold the Son of Man will be forgiven. Again, why does looking at a bronze serpent heal me of the venom of a snake? And the answer is it doesn't but it does if God heals. In light of that, you get some more victories, you get some more little fun stuff, and we just continue, and it continues, and it continues. Now then, you know what? I think we're getting... No, you know what? I think we can, we can finish this. We might be a little bit longer than we normally are. I was looking at it to see where we are and what's going on. You get... The same problems over and over and over again here in this book, which is going to be unfortunately a problem for everything. So you get Israel having their victory, and you get the nations now being afraid. Why? Because the nations should be afraid. So you get the um you get Balak of Zippor sending for who? Sending for Balaam. Why? For the cursing. I want you to curse the Israelites. It doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Because God won't allow Balaam to curse the Israelites. Now, unfortunately, Balaam will give Balak some advice on how to catch them in a snare for which Balaam will be uh, executed, but that's neither here nor there. And you see in the prophecies and the blessings that Yahweh is praised and Israel is blessed. Is that just because Balaam has this uh, affinity to Israel? No, it's because God is steering and God is the one who is at work. This is what the Israelites are supposed to be remembering. They're supposed to be remembering that God is at work. So once again, though, you get the sin of Peor. This was the advice from Balaam to Balak on how to catch the Israelites. And you have the immorality. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath. How did he do that? The sons of Israel came and brought his relatives to a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel. While they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He arose from the midst of the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through—the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. In other words, he cared more about the holiness of God and the command that God had given than he did what his brothers thought of him. That was the zeal of the Lord. Christian, again, this should be important for us in this world. We should care more about our standing in holiness before God than what the world thinks we should be doing. We should care what God thinks of us, not what the world thinks of us. And if that means condemning sin, then we condemn sin. If that means angering the world, then that means angering the world. And if that means going against the things that make us comfortable and prosperous in this world, it means going against those very things. This is the mistake too often the Christians make, is we get a little bit of authority, we get a little bit of security in this world, and we don't want to rock the boat. We fail to remember that our authority comes from a God, and our security is in his kingdom. And anything short of that is, is cooperation with this place. It is having our feet in two kingdoms, and we cannot dwell there. We cannot love the world if we are in Christ, because we are loving the thing that he is killing. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you get a census, next generation, law is handed down, the successor is named, Joshua will succeed. You get offerings of the law, law of the offerings, I'm sorry. You get offerings for the next festival and how they're going to run down. What do you do when you take a vow? How are we going to win in battle? We're going to win because of God. So what do you get? You get 31. That's why I love this. In the midst of all, Excuse me. In the midst of all of these laws, what do you have? You have, oh, by the way, we're still actually living. We're still actually doing this. We're still actually functioning as God's people. Again, Christian, as you grow, as you learn, as you're being sanctified, you're dealing with the world. Some days you'll get it really right. Some days you'll get it really wrong. Recognize that each day you are to offer that to God. So you get the Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh wanting to settle on the other side of the river. They will continue to fight for the Israelites until the land is taken, but they found a place that they like. You get the rundown of the journey. Then you start getting, how are we going to divide this land when we get to it? Where are the Levites going to be? How are the inheritance laws going to work? And that becomes the end of Numbers. I told you we'd finish it because there's a lot of stuff we were going to just kind of gloss through. But recognize, this is a sinful people. Trying to walk in godliness, failing miserably most of the time, that should be a comfort. Because what are we oftentimes? Recognizing our sin, recognizing our iniquity, and recognizing the great salvific work of God. As long as we remember who he is and how we relate to him, our foundations remain intact and we can live in this world while living for God. Notice the distinction there. We live in this world, but we live for God. God. When Israel really messes it up, they forget that distinction and they start living in this world for this world. When we live for God, things line up and make sense. When we recognize our dependence upon him who has preserved us and saved us, and we recognize that he will judge the sin and iniquity of this world, and that even in the midst of our long lives, that he is patiently working and accomplishing his promises, then we can walk the path he has laid out. So, what have we learned here today? God cares for his people. God's people are never the star of the show. Always remember that it is God, and God will accomplish his promises. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. Anything you want us to look at or take a gander along, send it to us. We'll be glad to look at it. Um, Hopefully life won't be in the way tomorrow and Lou and I can pick up where we left off going through some issues on uh, manhood and womanhood in Scripture and making ourselves set up as we, uh, well, as I prepare to go to the uh, annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention where who knows at this point, other than God, what the issues we're going to deal with are going to be because every time I think I've got it nailed down, something else comes up. So that's coming up sooner than later, and so we'll be dealing with that, and hopefully we'll be able to finish that little jaunt we've been taking and go from there. So until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.